Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are looking uh, this year on the triennial cycle, we are looking at the festival calendar, the instruction to count the Omer, uh, and then um, the counting of the Omer into the festival of Shavuot and Yom Kippur. So we are dealing with the the liturgical calendar of ancient Israel. So tell me what we know about the ancient Near East. What do we know about their subsistence technologies? How did how did they survive in the ancient Near East? Agriculture. Agriculture. <coughs> you had people who were farmers. So agriculture was a huge part of how they sustain themselves. So farmers, if you're a farmer, what is your wealth? Land. Your wealth crops. is the overage of your crops. Uh. The surplus. Right? So if you make enough to feed your family, fine, that's good. You don't starve. Families were large, right? They lived in clans. So if you made enough to feed your clan, that's wonderful. But that's all it is, is you don't die. If you want power, if you want status, if you want something more than eking by, if you want something beyond subsistence, then you must produce a surplus, right? If you have year after year of a surplus, you are able to purchase goods and services. You're able to purchase materials that increase your wealth, your material wealth. With that, you may buy brides from better families who also have wealth, right? So just like today, how much you have materially influences a lot about your social status and how easy or how difficult your life was in the ancient world and in some cases whether or not your family, your clan even had a future, had a shot at continuing. So if you have a surplus year after year, you acquire a lot of um, material wealth and social standing. What happens if you have a disaster of the crops year after year? If I have a disastrous harvest one year, what do I have to do? You might sell a kid. I might sell a kid. I might borrow. So if I'm going to try borrowing first before I sell a kid, generally. A child? A child. A human kid. Of course. This. What do you think people do today? People sell their children today. Of course. We have more slaves in the world. More people are being trafficked today than ever before. Ever in human history. Millions of children are sold and bought and traded and abused every single day. So I'm going to borrow first. If I borrow and have another disastrous harvest a few months later, what happens now? I can't pay back the loan, so I have to sell a child into indentured servitude. 
I sell myself into indentured servitude if it gets bad enough, if the loan was big enough. What might I do if that's not enough? I might sell part of my land. It was a last resort. Absolute last resort was selling your land. So if I keep having to do that, essentially then I no longer have the rights to those crops, right? It's no longer my land, right? This was poverty. This was destitution in the ancient world. And it happened frequently. There's drought. There's locusts. You know, there's whatever could happen to wreck your crop. Um, If it happened several years in a row, you become now dependent, essentially, on charity, this was common. The farmers in Israel depended largely on rainfall. They still do. So it's mostly rain, which is really out of people's control. So farming was a very um, up and down kind of... I just have no... No language power today at all. Tenuous at best, right? Proposition. Unless you had acquired enough wealth, right, that that you you could you could survive several years of drought, right? This is the Joseph narrative. The Joseph stories talk talks all about this, right? Collecting the surplus for seven years, preparing for a seven year drought. All right. That that's one way people sustain themselves in the ancient world. What's the other? Shepherds. Shepherds. So, nomadic pastoralists. What is your wealth if you are a semi-nomadic pastoralist? Your flock. Right? Your animals. Your livestock. Well, that's more like, doesn't that mean like cows? Okay. A bunch of West Side Jews, I'm asking. What what exactly does livestock mean? Um, So semi-nomadic pastoralists, their wealth was their flock. So the whole thing is about increasing your flock, right? The birth rate, the health, the reproduction of the flock, and um, keeping it safe, but also you want to improve the stock of your flock. Um, and that's how you increase wealth, right? So again, we see Jacob manipulating genetics in order to have, right, a different kind of flock. Okay. So both of these were subsistence technologies that were normative in the ancient Near East as well in Israel, part of the ancient Near East. So our most famous stories about semi-nomadic pastoralists are about whom? He, he's late, yes, he's definitely a shepherd because he's going to be king of Israel. And if you're going to be king of Israel, you have to be a shepherd first, right? We know this. You have to. Jesus, right? If you're, if you're going to be king of Israel, you have to be a shepherd first. Um, but the, the stories that we have that really that, that talk about this lifestyle are the stories of Abraham and uh, Jacob and Isaac. Isaac, you know, stayed in one place. Uh, but right, those stories of Abraham traveling all over the place is partly about 
how you fed your flock. You had to move the flock depending on what's blooming, not blooming, but like what's growing, when, and where. And there were very complicated systems of understanding when you had a right to have your flock graze somewhere and when you don't. Because... So whoever owns, so this is a big conflict between farmers and semi-nomadic pastoralists. What's the problem? Do you think farmers want sheep and goats eating their crops? Of course not. Do do they want them on their land? No. So you've got tension between settled agricultural villages and the semi-nomadic pastoralists who are bringing their flocks through those areas. It is a constant tension in the ancient Near East. So this this tension shows up all over the Torah once you know how to look for it. It is certainly there within this. Why did I go into this? It's because it's right here in our celebration of the festivals. So the, the crops happen... From springtime through when? So the late summer into the fall. And after the fall, we have winter in which nothing grows. Like you're living on your surplus and um, you can buy. But if you don't have surplus by fall... You're in trouble. You're in real trouble. Your family, your clan may not survive the winter. Because there's, there's nowhere to get anything. There's nowhere to get any food in a farming society. Yes? Okay. So we're going to keep that in mind as we look at our calendar. And a lot of things make more sense when we know kind of the rhythm of their year. This is <coughs> not being addressed to people who are doing either of those things. This is being addressed to people, theoretically, who are in the middle of the desert this, and were slaves. This is written by the people who are doing it. <coughs> so, oh, which brings me to another point. So, I, I promise we're going to get to the text. But you already know most of it, so it's not that exciting. Um, so, <coughs> tell me, um, this, this is in place in all of the ancient Near East. T- talk to me about... Pagan rites and rituals as regards harvest, flocks. Talk to me about that. What is what is the pagan system about? They have to appease the gods to get the rain. They have to appease they have to appease the gods who are whimsical at best and ruthlessly random at worst. You can get a thunderbolt thrown your way for just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, somewhere near the wrong goddess, right? Like things happen that are very random because the gods are capricious, right? So you're always looking to appease the gods so that rain happens, drought doesn't. Okay. So, and in the pagan system... It's nature and the rhythm of time is a circle that you want to keep going around. You just want it to keep going so that the rain happens, so that the, the, the blossoms, then you do the harvest, then you plant, then you, and you just want that to keep going. That's how you survive. 
So you do everything you can to encourage the cycle, and often they believed what you do here on this plane influences and is mirrored in nature, right? Hence, fertility rituals involved what? Say it, Pam. Fertility. <laughs> fertility rituals involved sex. Duh! If you want the crops to be seeded and to grow and you want your flocks to drop lots of babies, then the rituals to encourage that need to have sex involved in them. Because what happens as part of our religious ritual is mirrored in nature. We're trying to cause that to happen. To encourage it to happen. It's kind of funny. <laughs> it wasn't invented by a college fraternity. <laughs> it was so, right? But at a certain time of the year... Uh, well, I come from a farm, so I know my father. They would come to my father and pay because we had a bull that was supposedly good. Mm-hmm. And they would pay for having a coupling to cow with the bull. Of course. And it was extremely good money. Yes. He was a very amazing... We needed that. That's right. So you, your flock, the better your flock, the more people will want to be involved with you in order to have access to that genetic pool. 100%. So, so the, but the, so the pagan system is about doing rituals that will encourage in nature and in the other realms what you want to have continue. Ancient Israelite religion is a brand new idea. It says this is not, in fact, the case. It is God, one God, All of those gods are now collapsed into one force that controls all of it. It doesn't just keep happening on its own and then the gods kind of do some other stuff, right? It is this one god brings the rain or stops it. Brings the wind. Mashiv haruach, humorit hagashem. Blessed are you God who causes the wind to blow and the rain to fall. These are not just metaphors, for ancient Israelites. This is how you lived. You depended on the source of life that caused the wind to blow and the rain to fall. Because the wind has to blow in the right way at the right time for your seed to spread. Right? Okay. So ancient Israel has a new idea and that that there's one one deity that controls all of this, Yudhevav, hey? Yes? And Yudhevavhe punctuates that reality when that being so chooses. That is a, and there is a sense of redemptive history. It's not just gonna keep spiraling around and around, but is spiraling towards something. What is it spiraling towards? The messianic age. So we have redemptive history. That is our new idea in the ancient world. Redemptive history. So now it's not just a cycle. We're going to have the cycle because we're from that world, of course. But now it's a spiral moving in a direction and ultimately bringing us to the messianic age. Halavai, it should only be speedily and in our day. Amenu. Um and we participate with Yudhei Vavhei in getting there. 
We are partners with yud heh vav in getting to that messianic age. Sounds like the invention of hope. <laughs> that is probably a beautifully stated theological, you know, truth about what happened with the arrival of the Israelites on the scene is there is a sense of hope. We can impact what happens to us. So all the times we read in here, if you do this, it'll be good for you. If you don't, your crops will fail and the land will spit you out. We tend to see that as, oh, it's so black and white. It's so scary. Right? They, that's hopeful. If you understand that we can control whether or not we are exiled from this land in a time when war was everywhere and your crops could die like that because Zeus had a bad day. It's way more hopeful to think our behavior can actually logically and consistently with very clearly laid out rules lead to certain outcomes. That is hopeful in a capricious, scary world. It's kind of the opposite of Greek tragedy where you do the right thing and bad stuff happens That's anyway. exactly right. And I think it was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I read something that said, you know, that we are not a Greek tragedy. We are not Greeks. Like, we do not have that in our tradition. If you do good, it's going to be okay for you. It doesn't mean you individually, let's be clear. It does not mean you individually. You collectively. I might get hit by a camel, but my offspring will be plentiful, right? You know, so the idea was collectively, it will go well with us when we behave. The opposite of this. The the paganists were in their survival mode, which is probably the most time that you're ever in the moment is when you just have to get through it that particular moment and not thinking about but tomorrow will be better if such and such. So it worked for them and it was an important distinction, but for we're we're so far past thinking about survival and in the moment. We're always thinking about what's next and not and whether you, it's because it, you're hoping there'll be a messianic age or because you're, you know, not here and focus on us now. So, yes, and in some ways we're not focused on the future. The way we live right now is unsustainable, but we don't change it. Right. We're not really thinking about... Will my grandchildren be able to drive what I drive? Will there be streets to drive on? If I don't quit driving what I drive, you know, like we, we, so on the one hand, yes, we're always thinking about what's next, what's next, you know, because we're not in the moment. However, we don't do it in a way that says, are we living in a way that will allow my grandchildren to flourish and thrive? That, and that is a serious disconnect. We're not even in the moment. You know, and when we are thinking about the future, it's not about how will my behavior and my consumption and my choices affect the, the next generation. Could you go back to give me a bridge that gets me from paganism and belief that there are capricious gods that no matter what I do, I'm the subject of wind, to one God where wouldn't the logic have been, yeah, that one God is also going to affect me 
There, there must have been a change in thought that said what I do now can be independent of that one God. So... What I do is not independent of that one God. What I have now, thank God, is revelation, which explains exactly how I'm supposed to behave in relationship to the one God who will then make decisions about my life. So it's not really a change. So it's a shift. It's not a radical break. But it's not a capricious God. In other words, if bad things happen to me, to our clan... It's because we did something wrong. Our God is a just God. Fair and just. So loving and fair that that God gave us the rule book. I'm not capricious, people Israel. Look at Leviticus 23.3 and that's one expression of what you need to do to make sure that things go well with you. So it is through God's beneficence. Yes. 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 Revelation equals divine love. Teaching is love for us. That's why ve'ahavta, right? All that stuff about beshinantam levanecha, you will teach it to your children. Teaching is an act of love. And the paradigmatic teacher is God, who teaches us the way to live, proving that God is not only not capricious, but wants us to thrive. Choose life that you and your children may live. Yes, yes. We cannot look at that Correct, yeah. correct. And they did not. They did not have a sense of the individual. Their, their unit of reference was the family. It's much late, much, much later, not just for ancient Israel. It's much, much later in the world that the individual, it's post-enlightenment, that the individual becomes the seat of rights and responsibilities, right? Citizenship becomes the ideal. But I want to go back to your, say, when you said, what's the bridge? Get me from here to there. There's a wonderful book called The Axial Age by Karen Armstrong, who used to be a nun, left the church. She's a a fantastic scholar. I had the great pleasure of being with her um, for hours at a restaurant. It was fantastic. So she wrote a book called The Axial Age, saying, exploring this moment in time where there is a movement away from polytheism and capricious, random God's behavior to um, the one God who is just, right? Whose ways are just and fair. That moment, you know, she talks about there, that lots of places in the world, there is that same shift. And it is the axial age. This is our expression of it. But if you look at Egypt and you look at Ankhenaten, you know, and you look at that, that brief moment of monotheism in Egypt that quickly got crushed by all of the other gods and goddesses, priests and priestesses who were not happy about that idea of being out of a job, they crushed that movement. But there was great um, momentum behind monotheism in Egypt. Some of us have a theory about that. So 
So that's what Cahill would suggest, right? The gift of the Jews. Karen Armstrong argues this, we have a very clear record of it, but if you look in the texts and the movement of other peoples all around the world, in Asia and in other places, you see this same kind of evolution happening of thought, you're moving away from polytheism and randomness to A lot of this goes back to monotheism. It goes back to Abraham and arguing about Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham says to God at that point, which is at the very beginning of our story, are you, you're a just God. How can you do this? Remember the, the whole argument? You know, how can you're going to let the innocent people? die. And, but his assumption at that point and his statement and his assertion, even at that point, is that God is just. Yes. Ask what is it? No. 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 It's about contracts. Was what about contrast? Contracts. Contracts. Right, so, so God says I'll make you do. Well, that's the form it takes. Yeah. The form it takes is a contract between a, a vassal king and a conquering king. Because that's the model they had for contracts. The movement is pre-form. This idea of moving... Contracts have been around during polytheism. So when the shift happens, the form it takes as its presentation are the contracts of the ancient Near East. That's exactly what we have. All right. Yes. I was going to say that the, the just to point out another difference that the Greeks took their gods and imbued them with human <coughs> characteristics and foibles, and um, the Israelites, God is perfect and ethical, and we aspire to be like that higher, <coughs> better being. So I just wanted that's just a, an important distinction, I think. So you were talking about Greek polytheism? Greek. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that they have, the gods have flaws. Yeah. All right. And, by the way, Greek, that Greek mixture of, you know, the gods and people and, right, all that, you know, like, you know, the Zeus having sex with the swan, right, you know, and you get heroes from that and heroines from that, that remains and is one of the largest reasons that Christianity spread and was as attractive as it was, right? You've got the God having some kind of encounter with a human female and you get a demigod as your figure. Jesus becomes the Christ, the teacher Jesus of Nazareth becomes what's already been in the neighborhood forever, the Christ, right? That And they those start to come together, and now you have Jesus the Christ. Perfect sense. All right. So let's look at our text, shall we? Somebody begin 23-1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, These are my fixed times, the fixed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. On six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred occasion. 
You shall do no work. It shall be a Sabbath of the Lord throughout your settlements. Go on. These are the set times of the Lord, the sacred occasions which you shall celebrate each at its appointed time. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Lord, and on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you shall celebrate a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupation. Seven Seven days, you shall make gifts to the Lord. The seventh day shall be a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Go on. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving to you and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He shall elevate the sheaf before the Lord for acceptance in your behalf. The priest shall elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day that you elevate the sheaf, you shall offer as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb of the first year without blemish. The grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in, a gift of pleasing odor to the Lord, and the libation with it shall be of wine, a quarter of a hin. Until that very day, until you have brought the offering of your God, you shall eat no bread or parched grain or fresh ears. It is a law for all time, throughout the ages, in all your settlements. Okay. These are the set times. These are the sacred times. We get this phrase, Mikra Kodesh, right? And scholars, of course, are going to look at that. We just read past it because we just read the English and we read past it. My sacred convocations or whatever it is we read and we go on. Scholars stop and go, wait a minute. Why Mikra Kodesh? It couldn't just be a time. What is Mikra? Kore. To call. These are my called times. Why? Right? So th- these are the times that shall be proclaimed my sacred festivals. What is this proclamation about? They are depend. The, the, the first holiday we get is the first month of the year on the 14th day of the first month. What is a Hebrew month? Tell me about tell, tell me about that. It's lunar. It's lunar. Chodesh is month, yes? Mm-hmm. What is ugh, My brain and my hands are not working at the same pace. All right. So what is Chodesh? Hebrew Chodesh? What is the Shoresh about? What's the root? What what's what's that word? New. 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 New? I knew it was coming. All right, new. Chadash. New. Chodesh. New moon. New month because it's a new moon. Tell me what the new moon looks like. Dark. There's nothing there. <laughs> right? You don't see anything, right? Until you, till you do. And as soon as you do, oh, there's the moon again. We have a new Chodesh. Okay. But the authorities had to proclaim the new moon. You had to have witnesses, and there had to be the new month proclaimed. Okay. 
This is why there were fights in the ancient world about when a holiday was. One, just count. huh? You couldn't, you just, couldn't count. just count. You had to. You had to actually see the new moon. So. In the Talmud, there's a famous dispute, and it's not even about the holiday. The whole thing is about how bad the argument between these rabbis were. And it was such a power struggle that one proclaimed Yom Kippur one day, and the other proclaimed it another day. What are you supposed to do as a Jew? Right? Do you eat or do you not eat? Well, that depends which rabbi you follow, doesn't it? So that's how big this issue was. All right, so... Proclaiming the new moon. So now you're going to proclaim the month and then you're going to count to the 14th day of the month. Tell me about the moon at the 14th day. Full Full moon. Lots of light. Yes, you need lots of light because people are going to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Right? There are not enough hotel rooms. People are in their tents. You don't want to be running into people as you need to take care of your needs in the middle of the night, right? You need a full moon. You need light in order to have all those people outside. Okay. So 14th day, we just read, we're going to get to Shabbat. We just read the 14th day of the first month is what? Nisan. Nisan. The month is Nisan. And on the 14th day of the first month, what happens? There is a Passover meal. What does it say? Passover offering to the Lord. Okay. Well, what's the Hebrew? It does not say Passover offering in Hebrew. It says on the 14th day, Pesach Ladonai. Pesach Ladonai. All right. Pesach. Now you're going to have to figure out what that means. And I'm not saying it doesn't mean an offering. What I'm saying is we're told the 14th day of the first month is Pesach Ladonai. Pesach to God. Okay. This clearly has to do with lambing. You're going to have your Paschal lamb. Right? This is the regional festival of the semi-nomadic pastoralists in the spring what happens in the spring with animals they give birth birth. those of us who've seen the movie silence of the lambs wishing we had never seen it something you can't unsee or unknow um right so lambing this would have been the pagan festival for celebrating your flocks being born and being good and healthy and Many and numerous. The fifteenth day, what happens? You know, the festival of matzot. Begins the feast of matzot, which would have been your harvest for your farmers. This is the wheat harvest. If you only eat of the new crop for this time. You have unleavened stuff because you have no sourdough. You have no starter. Your feast of matzot. You are eating the new wheat only, which is unleavened. All right. 
So out of the pagan festival structure comes the reconstructed version of the Israelites. They are Canaanites. Right? We have no reason to believe that the culture of the Israelites came from anywhere other than Israel. Canaan. It comes from within Canaan. So they are... Mickey, if you'll not do that, that would be helpful. Thank you. It's, it's, I know it's unconscious totally. I have a problem. It's me. It's not you. I have an auditory processing issue. All right. So, um, so the, they, they're working within the system they know, and they are reconstructing it. Now, the lambing festival and the new wheat harvest festival business has a new level of meaning. They are put together because you need your, you need everybody on the same page. If you want to be one people in relationship to this one God, you better get your farmers and your semi-nomadic pastoralists both on board. Right? So they have, they pull these, these things together. And there's a new level. What do, what do we add onto this business as a people? The God part, yes. And what is the God part about in this particular holiday? Exodus. Liberation from slavery gets added on here. Right? And now there starts to be a story about there was a lamb and they put the blood and the la la and there wasn't time for the dough to rise and you It's the reconstruction of the Canaanite springtime festival, which was the first month of the year. The beginning, things are born, things grow. It makes sense that this was the first month of the year. What is the problem with that? It's not. It ain't Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> oh, now, the lights go on, right? How did it get to be Rosh Ah, there were two calendars in play in the ancient world. Here is proof that there were two calendars. Um, and so we have this one, and there was a tradition, the Babylonian tradition, which starts to heavily influence the Israelites who were exiled in 586 BCE. Temples destroyed, Jews have to go to Babylonia. They stayed there, most of them. Let's remember that. They did not come back. When they were allowed to, they did not return. They stayed in New York. Life was better there. So that, the Babylonian culture started their holidays in the fall, celebrating the coronation of the king. Sounds like a little, but it's... Does that sound familiar at all? Crowning the king? That's Rosh Hashanah. That's where all of that comes from, is that we crown God as king in the fall, because we're good Babylonians. So that that starts to have way more influence on what was happening and developing, and it wins out eventually that that the new year becomes the fall. They they recrowned, they had a ceremony of crowning, yeah, their king again, anew. 
the people expressing their renewed loyalty to the king in a huge festival every fall. Like State of the Union. It's like the State of the Union. Except there was no, presumably no shouting and hollering at what the king said. The Babylonians? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you have to go read on that and then come back and tell me. I can just tell you what happened. <laughs> I, I have, there's a limit to what I know. Um, all right. They, people have always changed things around. We've always reconstructed. Always, always, always. It's just that's just another one. We've all, this didn't. This wasn't first. Oh, we are so not going there. Um, okay. So, so, so it's dependent. Most of these holidays are dependent on proclaiming the new moon. Then you count to the middle of that month the 14th day, and you begin your holiday. The, there's one that is not done that way, and that is from Passover. You count the sheaf, right? When you raise that sheaf, you start counting. And when you, we just read it. We just read it, yes? Go back and read. And then when you count 50 days total, you now have Shavuot. What does Shavuot mean? (laughs) I need to be clear about what I mean when I say what what does it mean. What does the word mean, Shavuot? Weeks. From Shavua. Sheva. Shavua. A set of seven. Shavua. A week. Shavuot. Weeks. Meaning, the only way we know when Shavuot is, is to count Seven sets of seven days from Pesach. It doesn't get its own designation. It's dependent on Pesach. So if you're not paying attention at Pesach, you won't know when Shavuot is. Right? So it's different every year. So this is... No. It's always 50 days after Pesach. Passover is always the 14th day of Nisan. This is proof that we are Americans. Yeah. Pesach does not move. It is always the fourth day. You know, I'm, I'm like, gee, Christmas is early this year. <laughs> right? And all my non-Jewish friends are like, what? Right? If you anchor yourself in a lunar calendar, which some of us do because our work lives are based on the lunar calendar, it's like, wow, Christmas is so early. All right, so... Um, first year that I, because of Torah City, I looked up at Passover and I saw a full moon and I was like, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Never noticed. Right? So it's the... <laughs> wow, of course, it, wor- it works. She was telling the truth. <laughs> like... <laughs> You, you may know that the only one of these holidays that is not hooked to the moon or an observation 
is Shabbat. Which theoretically right. is hooked to the creation that's why of the world. That's why we're going last. Oh, okay. So Shavuot, right, is... Um, well, you know, my father died second Seder. So that moon, you know, so for me too, like every Passover now, it's like it's daddy's moon. Um, but it's always full. It's like, right, there it is, Sukkot moon. Duh, right? So sometimes I'll say to Eliana, where are we in the Hebrew month? Look at the moon. Tell me where we are in the Hebrew month. Because you can do that. You can look in the sky and have an idea of where you are on the calendar. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, so... What? It was. Of course it was prayed to. Of course. The sun and the moon, of course. That's why we get told God created them. So don't be worshiping them, you dumb Israelites. Those Canaanites do that silliness, not you. You know that God created those and hung them in the sky. So that would be silly to worship them and not the God that hung them there. So, of course, sun and moon worship are all over the ancient world. All right, so Shavuot, what comes after Shavuot? Walk me through it. (laughs) What comes after Shavuot? Something. I love this group. You can't oh, get Rosh anything Hashanah. over on this group. Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> so it's it's not month. called Rosh Hashanah. No, what comes month. next? Tell me, Bert. The what? What month? The first day of the seventh month. The seventh month. The seventh month on the first day of the month mm-hmm. is what? Tishrei. What is it? The first day of the month. Uh, what, what is this thing? Mikrakodesh. Oh, Mikrakodesh. Here we go again. A sacred proclamation of my sacred time of what? Hmm. Interesting. Ah. Interesting. Huh? What do we get there? It's not Rosh Hashanah in Leviticus. What is it? The day of? Truah. There you go. Mickey, what's Truah? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Truah. Okay, so that is all that happens on the first day of the seventh month, people. That's it. Why? Ah. Why? What comes next? Yom Kippur. On what? The tenth day. The tenth day of the month. The day of atonement. Now, why might we have a boop? To show the beginning of what's coming. The month of the Day of Atonement has come. That's the big day where all of your issues get resolved. And the people live in right relationship once again to the divine. Tell me where that happens in the cycle of 
Agriculture. Right before the fall harvest. Right before the fall harvest, which is when? September. (laughs) Sarah! Sukkot. Shame on you. Sukkot? Sukkot. When is it? Oh, oh, you mean what is the day? Help me here. The 15th day of that same month is the Feast of Booths. Booths. Which is full moon. So, full moon. Oh, yeah. It's all making sense now. So, a few days before that last festival of the year, we reset our relationship with the divine and are forgiven for everything. We hope. We hope. <laughs> then, after that huge day, that's the solemn big day, people, of the year, then comes the commandment to celebrate Sukkot and to party down. To seriously celebrate. Therefore, most of us in this business believe that these two are tied together. The the Sukkot harvest is whether or not you starve. Sukkot, if it goes well, party, we're going to live till the spring. Right? And that's it. After Sukkot, that's it. There ain't another harvest. So where do you want to be praying your hardest and say sorry, your most sincerest, and get forgiven for everything the bestest? Right before the last harvest that determines do you make it through the winter or not. And... Or something else I was going to say that I forgot. Um, but so that and right and right before the big end of the year party. If I'm going to see Marilyn at the Sukkot deal, I was not very nice to her last time I saw her. It's going to be awkward. I don't want it to be awkward at Sukkot. Do you? No. Let's agree that we're going to forgive each other and we're going to say sorry and we're going to repair all of that before the gala event of Sukkot. These two are what's tied together. This is simply to announce, the Yom Truah is to announce the month has begun during which we're going to fix our relationships between each other and the divine before we go into the great party for the last harvest of the year. Was that, a, was that uh, also a Babylonian? Was Yom a Babylonian? I don't know that. I'd have to see if there's a parallel. Except this predates the, you know, the system predates the exile. Um, so, but, but they're in the neighborhood. So possibly in the neighborhood there is such a thing. I, I, I don't remember. Um, so now does the l- lunar calendar make some sense that it didn't before it's like why are we starting this why is it a new year and the right right this makes sense if you live off the land this is your year every year every year you follow the cycles of the harvest the cycles of the flocks 
And you close the year in the fall with your final harvest. This is Thanksgiving. The pilgrims looked at this when they tried to figure out that first time they survived the winter because they'd been taught by the native peoples how to plant and harvest in the fall. What did they want? They wanted to show gratitude that they were going to live through the winter. So they looked at their Bible. They were religious people. They went to the Torah. How do you do that? You have a festive meal in the fall. We have Thanksgiving. It's very interesting because coming from from my father, I remember he went through the moon cycle to figure out exactly when to plant. Mm -hmm. Yes. The day to plant. Yes. And through the cycle of the moon and when to harvest. It was a very, it's a very interesting thing. Same thing with fishing, with all, everything is all lunar. And it, I guess, as you said, the month didn't exist, September, October, all of that. It just went from the moon, that's all. And that's why it, it confused me. When you said Nissan, I'm not, I don't, I'm not very familiar. I heard it, but I don't know what exactly what it means. Now you do. Now I do. <laughs> now you do. All right. But so. The thing, but the thing that we have that is not anywhere else is the linkage between atonement and sukkah. The Torah and what? The linkage between atonement. Atonement. And sukkah. We've lost it. But now we have it. You have it now. (laughs) It's right. There's some of us who are trying very hard to tie Yom Kippur into Sukkot. We are just dealing with such a radically different culture that has all the emphasis on Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur that my Jews are exhausted by Sukkot. My Jews don't want to see me at Sukkot. They do not want to be here. They don't want to put on dress shoes again. So it's a real problem. So some of us are trying to figure out, should we have a retreat then? You know, and let's study and eat and build a sukkah and do the blessings. You know, like, is there a way that we can do it without making it about shul? Coachella. I mean, that's yes, right. So that's I think would be a fabulous thing for the Jewish people for Sukkot to come back in some big kind of way. That after you've done all this, you know, you know, the davening and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Where's the party? We break fast, and then it's like. Oh, you know, we go home, it's like, that was hard. I'm, I'm really tired from that. You know, you wake up the next day and go back to, like, where's the party? The party should be that next weekend. We don't celebrate that we did this amazing thing together. Because that's how it's supposed to be. That's psychologically, spiritually, every single way. This makes sense. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we're done, does not. It leaves you kind of unfulfilled. It's empty, right? I mean, you did this great work, and then what? You watch TV? Like what? You run errands? You know, you go to Costco? Like what? We don't come together and see each other in this new 
we just had this intense, amazing experience. Wasn't that awesome? That was great. The sermon, I don't know. But, right? So, right? Because that's really what happens. Don't think we don't know. Um, so, but that's, it, may, it makes sense when you look at it this way. Robert? Um, at, at risk of burning this. Oh, please. I, did, I didn't quite get uh, Shavuot, the uh, seven times seven. You know, it, it almost sounds like it's, it's, a, it's a jubilee thing it's a couple of months it's um, It's the barley harvest it's the no it's in the summer it's in may june for us so that's so shavuot is the barley harvest so there would have been i did kind of skip it um it's dependent on pesach to determine it, and it's dependent on the cycles of the moon from the wheat harvest to the time the barley would ripen and be ready for harvesting. Okay, so if this is your liturgical calendar, if all of who you are is based on your surplus and all of that, do the laws saying you shall not reap to the very edge of your field begin to feel like they make a little bit more sense? You can't reap everything because there are people whose crops have failed too many years in a row. And they have nothing. You will leave the edges of your field for them to harvest. It does not belong to you. It belongs to me, says God. All of it belongs to me. I'm letting y'all use most of it. And keep the surplus. The edges do not belong to you. To use. It's not charity. It's not charity. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the poor. And you are stealing from the poor if you harvest all the way to the edge of your field. And that'll get you kicked out. That will get you spit out of the land. There could be a campaign to get agribusinesses to start leaving that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing that at a certain amount around the edges does not belong to the business. It belongs to the food bank. Period. Do, do they do that still in Israel? I mean, what do they do in Israel modern day? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure there, Halakha has taken this idea and changed it since we're not really an, an agricultural society. I mean, there are farmers, lots of farms in Israel. So some some things they do according to Torah law, like Shemitah. Yeah. But they figured out a way, it's sort of Shemitah, but it's not really Shemitah. You know, like it's lying fallow, but not really. You know, I mean, it's pill pool. It is not that they just went, oh, good, now we can live Torah law on the land. It's been too long. There's been too much rabbinic adjudication of this that, that we ignore. <laughs> they don't. Right. The, does that make sense? The religious authorities in Israel don't look here. They look at the code of Jewish law. They look at, at things that came much later that already took these ideas and interpreted them. I do, I do think that for contemporary Jews, we need to find ways that today we can reconstruct that. What do we do? How do we leave? Forgetting, I mean, I understand the point about agriculture. But if you just take that as a metaphor, what can we do in terms of leaving something? Right. But isn't, if 
I mean, it's rough. It's not what it is when we say we give, bring bags of food. Mm -hmm. it, are we excess in our heart? Or well, I, that, I, I that's part. Sadaka can be part of it, but there's also an issue. There's also an issue of leaving, of anonymously leaving something. That's right. For the poor somewhere, and I, I, I don't have the answer to it, but I'm saying I think that that's a challenge. So I think what Bert is getting at is it's beyond a couple of sacks of food once a year. That we need to reintegrate the concept that not everything that I have belongs to me. I don't have a field anymore, but I could say to the edges of my income to here belong to me. The edges around my paycheck do not belong to me. They belong to the poor. And how do I get that to them? And how do I determine what that is? And, and that's not tzedakah. And that's not, it's not, well, it is, it is tzedakah in the sense of what tzedakah comes from, which is the idea of what's just and what's righteous is that you don't keep the whole thing, everything. Lovely. It's not mandatory. Right. How many of us have one of those? If you have a certain amount of money, possibly, and if you're of a certain age, but it's not mandatory. That right. That's what Torah would say for sure, for sure. Okay. So I want to close with um, the point that Bert made, which is all of this is dependent on the cycles of the moon. He made the argument that the one that we began the reading with that I skipped is the only one not dependent on the moon. What is that? Shabbat. Shabbat. Now. There are some scholars that say, if you look at pagan religion in the area, there was something understood as Shabbatu. Shabbatu was a heart rest to the goddess on the full moon. Mm-hmm. On the in a, a proto a earlier language than Hebrew that Hebrew comes out of, Akkadian, Sumerian, those are the languages Hebrew comes out of, and it's that tradition, Canaanite, you know, in that region that has Shabbatu, a heart rest to the goddess during one phase of the moon. So, what if you then half that? And quarter it. What do you have? You have a Shabbatu every seven days. I am not convinced that Shabbat does not depend on the moon. I believe we don't have evidence of it here. Because they were too, they were trying to move away from this. 
and it could be syncretistic worship. So they move away from that. You will never convince me that Shabbatu has nothing to do with the origins of Shabbat. It has to. I, I mean, it's just, duh, right? I mean, I don't mean to you. I mean, for me, it's like, once I read, studied that, I'm like, newsflash from the department of duh. But there's another, there's another piece to it, and that is that all these other holidays, you know what day it is because you look at the moon. Mm-hmm. And while this may have be connected to the moon, Shabbat and the moon are not connected in terms of the physicality of the phases of the moon and Shabbat. Shabbat does not occur at the same... Shabbat occur- occurs every quarter moon. Except some of, the, some, of the month, some of the lunar months are 29 days and some are 28 days, so they don't coincide, and after a while they're not... Co- you don't know it's Shabbat by looking at the moon. That, that so, really is my point. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, and, but yes. the thing that is amazing to me is, at least in this book, right... <laughs> Shabbat is based on the first event, which is the creation of the universe. And that if we have Shabbat tomorrow, again, by this book, metaphorically, it is seven days times how many trillion from, you want to call it the Big Bang, or whatever you want. So so that's the meaning layer. The same way Shavuot got a layer and Passover got a layer of our narrative, the layer that goes on to Shabbat, the layer that goes on to Shabbatu is the seven days of creation. I'm totally down with that. What I want to give you that you might not have without me is that I believe it has been human wisdom for a very long time that we are meant to rest a sacred heart rest, dedicated to the divine every seven days. It's been, I just think it's part of the spiritual wisdom of our ancestors who predate our Israelite ancestors, right? It goes all the way back through Canaan and pagan, you know, traditions in Canaan that they understood that you need to rest with with the intention of connecting with the divine, dedicating that rest to the divine if you want to stay healthy as a people, as a community, as a family, as a person. And it was built into their their calendar system. It was not unrelated. It, everything is a cycle and everything has its time And every seven days, our heart needs the rest. That, in other words, it's, it's built in. And to this point, Bert is right that our narrative is that this is built into creation. On the seventh day, God Shavat Vayinafash. God stopped and Yinafashed. What is Yinafash? Rejuvenate. So Nefesh is self. God selfified on the seventh day. God rested and God selfified. What are we doing besides having the idea of stopping on, on working on Shabbat? We're selfifying. We are selfifying. 
So what is that going to mean for me this week? It means coming to Torah study. It means staying for meditation. Or it means going for a walk. Or it means, But are we very good at figuring out what this Shabbat do I need to be about in order to re-selfify? Has any other culture made it that central as it is to Judaism? Because what we Shabbat? do differently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, not, it's, it, yeah, it's not that other people don't have that idea, but it's so central to Judaism. I mean, I think in parts of Christianity, it remained, that was the Lord's day. And you didn't do anything on the Lord's day other than go to church. And it was taken very seriously. Um, now, now we would say that's an outgrowth of us having taken it very seriously. I, I, I don't deny that. Um, but I think, yeah, there's some, some other... Re- I mean, nothing like what has happened with Judaism. In terms of... In terms of it being so central to the culture. I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I would have. Other people don't have that. Ask. The fact that <laughs> right. That's true. Depends on which Christian or Muslim right. family yeah. you. Yeah. And and I think it's pretty simple. Yeah. That all come out of this. Yeah. So, Rabbi, you used the word heart rest. Is that what Shabbat two is translated to? Mm-hmm. So Shabbat heart means heart. Um, no, it's just that that's the English that they assign to this idea in, that we find in that tradition of every seven day, uh, at the, sorry, at one phase of the moon, resting in honor of the goddess. The same thing for seven years, you have to leave the land without, uh, without, uh, seating. All right, so I'm going to leave you with a Devartzedek from Rachel Travis. You'll take it home uh, and look at it. I'll just read the closing paragraph. Um, Our challenge during the weeks between Pesach and Shavuot, that's what we're in now, this counting of the Omer of these days, is to infuse our modern observance of the Omer period with lessons from its biblical predecessor. By fulfilling the command to rejoice in all the good we've been granted with those who have less. We can begin to do this by recognizing that the food we have is a gift and that we have an obligation to share our bounty with others. What form this takes is up to us as individuals locally. We could volunteer in a soup kitchen or with an organization that supports food justice. Globally, we could learn about food aid and policy or evaluate how our personal consumptions have a global impact. However we act on it, our contemporary counting of the Omer represents an opportunity to reflect on where our gifts come from and how we can provide for others. This is our Omer. Let's make it count. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.